Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you, to be with you. My name is Nelson. Something new about me, if you know me, if you've been around for a while, and that's I'm wearing something on my face. Um, and I'm still getting used to it. So this is the first time I've ever preached or taught or presented with my progressive lenses on, and it's super weird. So if I'm looking sort of like strangely like this, it's because the top part, you know about progressives? The top part of the lenses are like the part that are least corrective. So if it looks like I'm stern, like don't look at, <laughs> don't look at the posture. Just I'll try to like do extra stuff on the bottom of my face to make sure you know that I, I still love you and we'll see what happens. So, but wow, my text, like it's like night and day. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful, if you could see what I'm seeing. So it's good to see you and be with you on this, uh, this new day. This is an example of a work of art from Biblia Pulperum which means literally, poor man's Bible. Uh, Biblio pulperum is a term that describes works within churches and cathedrals that either individually or collectively have been created to illustrate the story of the Bible for a largely illiterate population. And so these artworks took the form of carvings or paintings or mosaics or stained glass windows like this next one. And this one's from Canterbury Cathedral in England, and each panel has a particular story. I'm sure you've seen stained glass before, but this is what one image of uh, Bibliopoperum. And this dates back to the 13th century. So it's not surprising that in a culture that was mostly illiterate, pictures would become a primary medium for storytelling. And so Christ followers living in medieval times then were able to make sense of this because it was a learned language. And it seems to me that in our day, film functions a lot like Biblia Poperum. We too are impoverished and illiterate, but more in a spiritual sense. And so, so just as medieval Christians needed to learn and hear, or learn to hear and tell the stories using the language of Biblia Poperum, we too need to learn something of the language of film to understand how they tell stories. So in this short, maybe all too short, series on film and faith, we want to give ourselves to some intentional learning with regard to how movies tell stories. And at the same time, we want to try to learn a bit about how we might bring those stories that we see on screen into dialogue with scripture and with theological wisdom and truth. So to look closer, closer at both text and context. So in so doing, our hope is that we will be better equipped to live out the story of Jesus and to practice his way of being in the world and our particular corner of it more faithfully and creatively. So three films started last week with Matt and Blythe, um, a lovely engagement with the film Ratatouille. And if you haven't uh, yet seen that film or heard the podcast, uh, I encourage you to check that out online. And so three films, three weeks, and today is week two. So before we dive into our feature movie for this week, let's pray and ask God for his help to do all these things. Creator God, maker of all that is, we thank you that you have welcomed us into the great story that you are telling in creation and also in the new creation that you too have invited us into. And we thank you that we have entered that story through Christ. We thank you that you have made us storytellers. We're grateful this morning for the gift of film, fallen as we are, and yet capable of being transformed and made into a new creation as we are. So Lord, as we explore what it means to join your story with the stories we tell in film, we ask for alertness and for clarity, for eloquence, 
We're thankful for your presence with us. Amen. So this morning, we're going to take a closer look at a movie called Eighth Grade. How many of us have seen it? Okay, so, yeah, that's about what I figured. I like that hand held high there, Richard. Appreciate that. Um, this was released just last year, 2018. Eighth Grade is comedian Bo Burnham's feature film directorial debut. And here's a shot of him pictured with the film star Elsie Fisher. In this film, he deftly encapsulates the awkwardness, the angst, the self-loathing, and reinvention that a teenage girl goes through on the cusp of high school. So the film's story centers on Kayla Day, who is played by Fisher. And Kayla is an anxious girl navigating the final days of her eighth grade year. And so as viewers, we are invited to be with Kayla every awkward, nerve-wrecking step of the way as she navigates the highs and lows of her last week of middle school. Uh, to offer an even clearer picture, let's watch the trailer together. Hey guys, uh, it's Kayla back with another video. So, the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard, and it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. A lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever, but I'm not quiet. Most quiet, Kayla Day. I don't talk a lot at school, but if people talk to me and stuff, they'd find out that I'm like really funny and cool and talkative. By the way, I like your shirt a lot. It's like so cool. What? said one more week of eighth grade, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, huh? Okay, so growing up can be a little bit scary and weird. We will begin to explore these changing bodies of yours. It's gonna be lit. As always, make sure to share and subscribe to my channel, Gucci. I think you're so cool. Maybe you just need to put yourself out there a little. I'm gonna stop eating saying, with you hey, if you I'm keep doing one, You said I could say one thing. I'm really like nervous all the time. I try really hard not to feel that way, but you just need to face your fears and let people know they're really you. Just grab my phone, how to charge it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I charge it too. But my, my phone, I... Just because things are happening right now doesn't mean they're always gonna happen. Who was in there? Just sort of my hopes and dreams. Right. I was a complete mess when I was your age. Really? Eighth grade is the worst. You never know what's next. And that's what makes things exciting and scary and fun. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade? What? Yo, Oh, heart-wrenching and beautiful and funny and all the things. As we saw in the trailer, Kayla often turns to YouTube to express herself, and she makes these uh, advice blogs, nervously pretending to have it all together, whereas reality suggests otherwise. Uh, one reviewer had this to say, it's tough to make movies about technology and youth culture and the frightening limitlessness of a connected world without coming off as patronizing or out of touch. Burnham 
A 27-year-old stand-up comedian who first emerged as a YouTube star in the early days of the website is running headlong at those topics here with this debut film. And the results are resonant. His portrait of Kayla's eighth grade experience is as wrenching as it is sweetly funny. And in moments like her Enya-scored night of browsing, it can be at once mesmerizing and terrifying. I agree. What the director has given us here is a truthful, honest, compassionate look at the real life of a girl in eighth grade. I think the film succeeds on many levels, but before we take a closer look at some key themes within the story, I wanna just highlight a few of the film's merits. One of them I would just say is, is the film's realism. And of course I can't totally vouch for how real it is, but as David Sims put it in his review in The Atlantic, the film never seemed to lean into the operatic awkwardness of a Todd Salon's movie, or the verbose emotionality of a John Hughes work. A comment I agree with, although I still love The Breakfast Club. Burnham keeps his narrative low to the ground and roots the audience in Fisher's astonishing performance. So in writing about how Fisher portrays Kayla, Sims continues by saying this. She's taciturn, but her eyes shimmer with excitement and hurt. Her body language is always calibrated to her environment, be it curled up defensively at school or grumpily slumped at home. Josh Hamilton plays her dad not as a pillar of wisdom, but as an encouraging, sometimes embarrassing pal who can be odd in his own way, very much his daughter's father. About the film, one writer said it's like he had, had it carefully BS tested for authenticity by real life eighth graders, so just trust me. <laughs> and here we have it from true authorities, as you have not seen. Um, so on a related note, when we're talking about realism, also the film succeeds on the level of empathy. It seeks to understand not to judge. How does it do this? It does this by centering firmly on Kayla. It's not an ensemble piece. Everything that's happening is happening to Kayla. The other characters at school and home revolve around her. They embarrass her, they ignore her, and I can't think of a better way to summarize the teenage experience. Um, we're gonna watch another short scene in a moment here, and we'll trust that maybe it'll work. And before we do though, let's remind ourselves what empathy is and isn't. Brene Brown's definition is probably as clear and helpful as any that I've come across. She says, empathy is not connecting to an experience, it's connecting to the emotions that underpin an experience. So if you're wondering, or if you ever wonder, how you can show empathy for someone who is going through something you've never experienced, so I think now of the men in the room. I'm thinking of women who always sat with the cool girls. Remember that empathy is about connecting to the feeling under the experience, not the experience uh, yourself or itself. So in the scene that we're hopefully gonna watch, Kayla has arrived at her classmate Kennedy's birthday party. In the class superlatives, Kayla won most quiet, which you saw in the uh, trailer. Kennedy, by contrast, won best eyes. So Kennedy is the quintessential cool girl, and to be clear, she is not Kayla's friend. Kayla got invited only because Kennedy's mom made her. Here's a shot of the DM invite that she got one evening. Hi, so my mom said to invite you to my thing tomorrow, so this is me doing that. Quite a warm invitation. And by the way, it's a pool party. So as the scene opens, Kayla is in the house, and she's about to change into her swimsuit. As you watch, ask yourself, when have you experienced similar emotions to what Kayla is going through? Thank you. 
Sidebar, the music um, is something to behold in this film. It pairs so beautifully with what's going on and highlights it's so incessant, incessant and it's so discordant sometimes. Oh, my goodness. Um, so we all know, don't we, what it's like to look into the mirror and say, I don't want to do this, but I know I have to. It's expected of me. All the cool kids are doing it, and I so, so want to be cool. The drive to belong, to fit in, to be accepted is so universal. It's hard there to imagine there not being at least one or two things that are going to ring true for anyone who sees this movie, regardless of age, whereas other scenes will speak more directly to a younger generation. One reviewer said this, I'm not the first to experience eighth grade or to respond to eighth grade as if it's a PTSD trigger. Few escape those years of physical transformation, emotional turmoil, peer pressure, and anxiety without scars. And few filmmakers have the courage, the artistry, the empathy, and the resolve to represent those years truthfully. Most movies about early teen experiences oversimplify things with wish fulfillment endings, characters rigidly categorized into types, or an obsession with raunch that suggests the storytellers never really grew up. This quote segues perfectly to the last thing I want to say about the film's merits, by now hopefully pretty obvious, which is just to say that it's really well directed. Bo Burnham has given us a film both original and kind-hearted. It works because he cares deeply and is keenly attentive to this lonely character. It works because of the way it draws us into her experience as the camera literally follows her into school, into her own bedroom, into the cool girl's house, and into her backyard, into the mall. It works because, as seasoned film critic Jeffrey Overstreet put it, Burnham refuses to get lazy and pour this batter into a pre-existing cake mold. Overstreet also called eighth grade one of the finest depictions of adolescent struggles I've ever seen. If you haven't yet seen it, I hope you want to. I encourage you to do so. And if you have, watch it again. It absolutely warrants repeated viewings for all the reasons I've mentioned and more. So I've tried to highlight a few things about why this film is worthy of our attention from an artistic, from a human point of view, at the same time offering hopefully some windows into the film's story and its central character. 
So to press further, what might we glean from it in terms of spiritual theological insight? It touches on a number of universal themes. Image, in-betweenness, identity, and how these all relate to each other. It's about the longing for acceptance, to be wanted, to believe we matter, to know we belong. I mentioned seeing, and I think this works on a number of levels. How we see ourselves, uh, how others see us, and how we imagine others seeing us. And for each of these, there are secondary themes related to the question of whether we're talking about our real true selves that are seeing and being seen, or our online selves curated through social media platforms and the degree to which both or to, and the degree to which those are real or true or edited or altered or fabricated or something else. Even the question of how God sees and hears us is raised by the film as in one scene, Kayla prays to God from a dark place. Maybe the best place to start is to look closer at the theme of in-betweenness. At almost exactly, appropriately, the halfway point of the film, Kayla gets to spend a day shadowing a high school student. It goes really well appears to be an answer to her prayer. Kayla's feeling good, so she makes a video about growing up in which she says, okay, so I'm an eighth grader, which means next year I will be in high school. Now, high school is a lot different than middle school because middle school is like really, um, it, it, high, middle school is like in the middle. And that is pretty well said. Middle school is like in the middle. By the way, does anyone know what the name Kayla means? Anyone? It means laurel or crown, signifying, in my view, royalty, dignity, honor. I love that. Aiden, Kayla's crush, is an Irish name meaning, meaning little fire. So these names aren't drawn from a hat, right? Every decision in filmmaking is intentional. So Kayla feels the middleness of her experience acutely throughout the movie. One moment we see this come into sharp relief is not through a YouTube video or an interaction with other people, but in her private notebook. Have a look at this. Kayla's in the process of crafting a note to herself divided into two columns. On the left, things I want. On the right, how to get them. First thing she wants, more confidence. How to get it, don't slouch, smile more, speak louder. Second, more friends. How? Make small talk. Be nice. Leave nice comments on people's Instagrams. Second image. How will she get a best friend? Get more friends first. Pick a favorite one. And I love this. Be there for them no matter what. All caps underlined. And how might she get Aiden to move from being her crush to being her little flame? Be sexy. New haircut. This is so heartbreakingly real, that desire for real connection and friendship to know she matters, that she has value and dignity as her name suggests. I kind of want to cry when I imagine my wife, my daughter, my friends, my directees, myself, anyone I love sitting with their deepest desires and longings, whether they're fulfilled or whether they're unmet. This moves us as viewers because the director is leading us to see Kayla as she does, as he does, pardon me, with empathy. We may not have had the same experience that, that she's going through, but although some of us probably have, but we can connect with the feeling beneath the experience. What is the feeling? 
that all of us, to one degree or another, live in a state of liminality, of in-betweenness. Non-resolution is a defining characteristic of what it means to be human. Whether or not we believe in God doesn't matter. One of my Regent College professors put it this way, and I hope I never forget it. We are inextricably middled in our own story. We are inextricably middled in our own story. So just take a moment to think about how this is true for you, even right now. What two things are you in between? It could be multiple sets of things. Maybe you're between jobs, between schools, between relationships, between seasons of one kind or another. At this moment, my wife Terry and my daughter Adrian and I are between neighborhoods. We currently live downtown. We've lived there for about 11 years, but soon we're going to be moving to Mount Pleasant. And even though we haven't yet physically moved, even though we haven't left downtown, even though we haven't settled into the new space, on an emotional, spiritual level, we feel the in-betweenness. We are inextricably middled in our own stories, and that's why we need stories. So if you reflect on your own story in your own life, it begins shrouded in mystery. Who can remember their own birth? The events that shaped us in our earliest breathing moments can't be reached by memory. So we depend on others, parents, loved ones, to tell us our story. There's mystery about the end of our stories as well. It's even more unknown than the beginning. Where we will go, what will happen, how we will die. Think of the many questions that are playing out about your future right now. And I think we tend to be very confused and anxious about the present. It can be hard to get perspective when you're in the middle. That's why we need stories. So we can make sense of our own stories. That's why stories like eighth grade are so powerful. As screenwriter and story guru Bobette Buster put it, narrative is our culture's currency. She who tells the best story wins. So Kayla's experience mirrors the reality of in-betweenness all too well. How did she cope with being middled? Through story, her own stories, the ones she told through her YouTube videos. Now, if you've seen the film, you know the question is raised, was anyone watching? <laughs> is anybody else even listening? And that seemed to be the most important question to Kayla, at least initially. And she'd like to believe that other insecure middle, girls, middle school girls might find her, lonely as she is, and maybe they will. But at the end of the day, by which I mean at the end of the film, the number of views and likes and subscribers she had mattered, or that she had mattered much less to her. What mattered was that Kayla was paying attention. She worked hard to create the narrative she most needed to hear. I love what one critic said about Kayla's YouTube web series. He said, There's, she's aspiring to speak from a place of wisdom she has not yet obtained. This might seem tragic, even presumptuous, but the episodes become an inspiring affirmation that much of what we need most we carry in ourselves. In a sense, she's becoming the mother she never had, the coach she needs, and the friend she'd rather find on the other end of a phone. She's looking back at herself with the loving acceptance and compassion that she needs, the love she finds difficult to accept from her father, who, genuine as he is in his encouragement, is supposed to say those things. Kayla's story is indeed one of in-betweenness. She's in middle school, 
which as she herself wisely noted is like in the middle, but she's on a good trajectory. She's moving toward an end. She's taking things in stride. She's starting to see herself through the eyes of compassion and love. But this isn't, it doesn't seem to be the path that the majority of her classmates is on, which leads us to the theme of identity. One of the biggest questions raised by the film is what defines me as a person? Who or what gets to tell me who I am? And an extremely popular answer, of course, both in the film and in the wider culture is the internet. Social media in particular, and the technologies that keep us tethered to those sources of identity. Now again, I wanna reiterate that this story approaches these issues from the standpoint of understanding, not judgment. But as people seeking to learn and practice the way of Jesus together, I believe this movie invites us to look closer at our own relationship to our smartphones. And in light of that, how would you and I honestly answer these questions? Who gets to tell me who I am? How does the film answer these questions? One way we could read it is as a story that illustrates the futility of striving for an identity apart from God, or in other words, apart from perfect love. Kayla struggles this, to be sure, as we all do, but she's finding a better way. It's not so with certain others. In his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner says, self-knowledge that is pursued apart from knowing our identity in relationship to God easily leads to self-inflation. This is the puffed-up, grandiose self Paul warns about, an arrogance to which we are vulnerable when knowledge is valued more than love. We see this in Aiden, as he describes to Kayla during a lockdown simulation, using language I won't repeat here, what he'd do to the perpetrators if there were ever a real school shooting, and how the last place he would be found is hiding under a desk. Aiden, AKA the little fire, does this while simultaneously looking at his phone. Benner continues by saying self-knowledge pursued apart from relationship to God can also lead to self-preoccupation. Unless we spend as much time looking at God as we spend looking at ourself, our knowing of ourself will simply draw us further and further into an abyss of self-fixation. We see this in Kennedy and Steph. As Kayla approaches them at school the day after the pool party to give Kennedy, get this, a handwritten thank you note. How sweet is that? And the two can barely bring themselves to look up from their phones. But I'd suggest self-preoccupation shows up most clearly in a character named Riley in a scene that many have described as the film's Me Too moment. It happens after Kayla has found a new friend named Olivia at a high school event for incoming freshmen. Kayla's feeling confident. She gets an invite from Olivia to come hang at the mall with her and a small group of high school seniors. After the hangout, Olivia's friend Riley offers to drive Kayla home, which seems innocent enough and neither girl thinks twice about it. Olivia gets dropped off first and Riley pulls over to the side of a quiet neighborhood street and hops into the back seat with Kayla. There he instigates a dread-inducing game of truth or dare. He asks Kayla, who is four years younger, how far she's gone sexually before taking off his shirt on a dare and daring her to do the same. Kayla stares down at her lap, she's visibly shaken, and she refuses. So Riley begrudgingly gets back into the driver's seat and he guilts her for it. I was trying to help you, he says. 
telling her that high school boys will make fun of her for being inexperienced. And Kayla feels ashamed. She apologizes repeatedly. She gets home. She runs up into, the, into her room and bursts into tears. It's a frightening scene. From an identity-constructing standpoint, it reveals the horrifying impact that obsessive self-fixation can have on others, not just on ourselves. But at the same time, it's a powerful moment when Kayla says no. Director Bo Burnham writes this, or says this, I have people tell me all the time, I am so glad that scene didn't go where I thought it was going to go. But it doesn't need to in order to be emotionally violating for Kayla. He says, I wanted to portray a moment that when described after the fact doesn't sound like a big deal, but actually is when you sit there and experience it with her. That scene takes a turn where her anxieties can't just be dismissed by an adult as, oh, you're in eighth grade, nothing's really happening to you. Significant things happen at that age that can really traumatize kids. So because Burnham had the courage the foresight to include this scene, the film invites conversation not only about identity, but toxic masculinity, female empowerment. It's much more we could say. But I want to end the film where the film does, or end the talk this morning where the film does, with a focus on the characters who see Kayla not as someone to be manipulated or used or ignored, but who see her through the eyes of love. There are at least two obvious ones in the film. One of them is Gabe. How can you not love Gabe? Kayla first meets Gabe when he introduces himself to her at the pool party as uh, Kennedy, the cool girl's cousin. He's a bit of an awkward guy, but he doesn't care. Gabe is sweet. He's considerate. And when he meets Kayla, he quickly intuits that she is as shy and nervous and awkward as he is. I wish we had time to watch the chicken nugget scene. We don't. But let me just reveal that at one point, Gabe looks straight at Kayla and simply says, you are awesome. The most obvious character who sees Kayla with love is her dad, Mark Day. Throughout the film, Kayla's dad does his best to be present to her, to root for her, to tell her she's cool. And for most of the movie, Kayla has a hard time receiving it because as the reviewer said, that's how dads are supposed to be. But near the end, Kayla finds herself in a different space. So let's watch the last portion of this scene together. To, to be proud of you. It, I'm not just saying this. Hey, I swear to God, I'm not just saying this. I mean, sure, sometimes if I see you're upset or having a, a rough day, then I, I feel sad. But that kind of being sad, that sort of day-to-day -day sad or worrying that I do, that's not. Kayla, always, beneath all that, I am always just so unbelievably happy that I get to be your dad. mom left, I was really scared. I was really, really scared. I, I was scared you weren't going to be okay. And then you started to get older. And you got, I don't 
don't know, you took your first steps and you said your first words and you made your first friend. All the things I thought I was going to have to uh, teach you how to be nice, how to uh, share, how to care about other people's feelings. You just started doing that on your own. You know, your teachers would always say to me, you've got such a lovely daughter. You've done such a great job with her. But I didn't do anything. I really didn't. I really didn't. I just watched you. And the more I watched you, the less scared I got. Does that make sense? I stopped being scared about whether you were going to be okay a long time ago. <sighs> Do you know why? Because of you. You made me brave. And if you could just see yourself how I see you, which is how you are, how you really are, how you always have been, I swear to God, you wouldn't be scared either. He's a good dad. If you could see yourself as I see you. Hmm. This moment reminds me of Fred Rogers' words. You've all seen that movie too, right? The documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Where he says, love is at the root of everything. All learning, all parenting, all relationships, love or the lack of it. I wonder if the biggest theme in the film from a theological standpoint is about the struggle to see and to know oneself as loved. Not for anything we've done or achieved, not for any level of cool we've aspired to or, or succeeded in getting, but simply because we are. And in spite of anything that we've done or said that we think might disqualify us from being worthy of love, Kayla, through her wonderfully present and compassionate father, is learning to see herself in this way. What about us? How are you and I seeing ourselves this morning? As beautiful an example of love as Kayla's dad is, scripture reminds us that there's a love even more beautiful, even more present and perfect. Ephesians 3, Paul prays that we would come to see ourselves as God sees us. And however you've come this morning, I invite you to hear these words as though they're being prayed over you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Can we receive those words this morning? And as we learn, as we learn to receive this love, may we also learn to, to give it away. As we learn to know ourselves as deeply loved, may we also see others through the eyes of love. Let's let Dostoevsky encourage us towards this. He writes, Love people even in their sin, for that is the semblance of divine love and is the highest love on earth. Love all God's creation, the whole and every grain of sand in it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you've perceived it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day. And you will come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. Friends, it doesn't get much more simple than this. So, may God use this film's story, arm in arm with scripture, arm in arm with the spirit, to help you love yourself and love others as Jesus does. Amen. And let's come to the table together. I mentioned a number of times that we need stories, and one of the things I'm grateful for is that we get to rehearse the big story, um, where we can locate ourselves again if we felt like we veered off course, even the slightest bit, can remind ourselves of the story, the source of love that lies at the heart of it. So I invite you to uh, join with me in reading our table litany. This is uh, the reminder of, of why we're doing what we're doing each week. And invite you to respond with the bold text, and I'll have a few instructions about how we'll practice this. The gospel is the good news that God, our Father, the Creator.